Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. The world is experiencing the most extraordinary and scary crisis. And of course, that is the coronavirus or COVID-19 pandemic. Animal people, I'm sure you've wondered whether our dogs and cats can get sick from this virus or transmit this virus and cause illness. Or maybe you've read an article or saw a social media post about pets and this illness. Fortunately, we're going to get some solid and current information about pets and this nasty virus with my first guest, who I will introduce in just a second. And I know this topic is on everyone's mind. Just the other day, I've received an informational press release from Texas A&M Veterinary School, which was a good summary of their current thoughts on these questions. I shared it with our friend and veterinarian and frequent Animals Today guest, Dr. Robert Reed, and he replied to me saying that he's asked about COVID-19 in pets multiple times a day. So to hear the very latest on how this virus relates to our companion animals, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Lee Hoffmeister. She's a veterinarian who writes the very popular blog, My Vet and Me. Welcome to the program, Lee. Oh, thank you for having me. Lee, as I just mentioned, everyone who has a pet is concerned and is wondering whether their dog or cat can get sick from this virus. I haven't heard or read about any cases yet. Do you think this is possible? According to the American Veterinary Medical Association, the virus SARS-CoV-2 that causes the disease COVID-19 is not believed to be a threat to our pets. And the Centers for Disease Control, as well as the World Health Organization, both have issued a statement saying that pets do not play a role in the transmission of SARS-CoV-2 virus to humans or to other animals. And in the United States to date, we are not aware of any reports of infection or clinical disease in pets. Now, we know in people, there's a carrier state. So someone can actually be infected without symptoms and can be shedding the virus and infecting other people or contacts and not be aware of that. So this can't happen in animals. Can my dog or cat harbor the virus and give it to me? No, but I would like to add that... Even though dogs and cats are not seen as carriers, they do need to abide by the social distancing that we as pet owners are following. Yeah. To keep their pet to keep their pet parents safe. Do we know whether a companion animal can say transfer the virus from his or her paws or fur without being infected to a person and get them sick? Just like we hear that the virus can stay alive on surfaces for up to a couple days. Why not animals? We do know that the virus survives on smooth metal surfaces like doorknobs, iPhones, things like that. We have not tested the virus on the coat of a dog or the paws of a dog. But in my opinion, I think if that were true, we'd have a lot more people that were sick Yeah, because a lot of people have pets. Right, exactly. So given what you've just explained, Lee, if someone in a family were to test positive, what are you advising should be done or happen to the pets? Should the pet be removed from the same isolated area as the infected person? That's a really common question that I'm getting from my clients. Um, and it is important to consider our pets during this time of social distancing and we need to be prepared. Uh, what I've been telling people is to make sure you have food for each of your pets for at least two weeks, preferably one month. 
if your pet suffers from chronic disease or is in need of daily medications, you should have a sufficient supply of that as well. I'm recommending to my clients to have instructions for care of each of their pets printed out so that in the event a pet parent does become sick with any illness, they have a caretaker lined up and all of the instructions, food and medication is readily available. Great tips. Dr. Lee, we just received a notification from our veterinarian who's with VCA. They have adopted a new system to see and evaluate your pet in case they need to be brought in for a visit during this time. We're all being ordered to avoid close contact with other people wherever possible, and you don't want a waiting room with a bunch of pet guardians assembling if you can avoid it. So what they're doing is having you stay in your car outside until it's your turn, and then a staff member will come out and transport the pet into the office for the visit. And then you do a telephone call with the doctor when they're done. I think it's really clever since people don't want to neglect their pet if they need to see the veterinarian, especially if it's an urgent visit. Have you heard about this or strategies like this? Absolutely. And in my clinic, we have adopted similar policies Veterinary hospitals are essential businesses, and for the most part, veterinarians across the country are open and continuing to see patients. In my practice, we're continuing to practice sanitation efforts and, of course, you know, using personal protective equipment when appropriate. We have limited our clinic to six clients at a time as we have six exam rooms, and there is only one pet parent allowed with a pet. Uh, for the visit. This reduces client-to-client interactions and basically eliminates traffic through our lobby. We also have curbside service, like you mentioned, um, in addition to telemedicine available during office hours and when we are closed. And just as a whole, watching this virus very closely and making adjustments as needed. Dr. Lee, can you offer us any tips on how to keep our dogs and cats mentally and physically stimulated during this time of quarantine and social distancing? Absolutely. You know, I had someone ask me not too long ago about dog parks, and I really uh, do not recommend that right now, basically for the safety of the pet owner. So we are staying at home, front yards, backyards, maybe short walks around the neighborhood if it's not too busy. But You know, I've recommended to my clients maybe teaching their dog a new trick, working on their manners, reinforcing their leash behaviors. Um, And with cats, you know, maybe work with a laser pointer and get them that extra exercise because it's important that that they're mentally stimulated, you know, as well as physically. And although we are, I know a lot of people are experiencing anxiety, maybe they've lost a job, maybe they're not working and, and things are uncertain, that anxiety transfers to your pets. So look at them as a source of comfort and take them outside and and spend some quality time together. Dr. Lee Hoffmeister, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. There are numerous surveys that come out each year with their list of the most and least pet-friendly cities, right? Right, right. So here's another one. This is from Wallet Hub, which looked at 100 of the largest cities. So they found the top 10 most pet-friendly cities to be, you want to guess, Peter? Oh, let's see. Austin, San Francisco, Boston, Omaha. Okay, wrong. That was terrible. You didn't get any of them. Number one, most pet-friendly city, Scottsdale, Arizona. Next, Orlando, Florida, Tampa, Florida, Austin, Texas, Phoenix, Arizona, Las Vegas, Nevada, Atlanta, Georgia, St. Louis, Missouri, Seattle, Washington, Portland, Oregon. Least pet-friendly cities, Detroit, Michigan, 
Aurora, that's in Colorado, Nashville, Newark, Santa Ana, Chula Vista, that's in California, Milwaukee, Buffalo, Laredo, Texas, Fresno, California. Yeah. A few side notes here, Peter. Miami has the most veterinarians per person, and Newark, New Jersey is the city with the fewest veterinarians. St. Paul, Minnesota has the lowest monthly dog insurance premiums, and San Francisco is the city with the highest dog insurance rates. San Francisco also has the most pet businesses per person. Newark, New Jersey, the city with the fewest pet businesses. Okay, here's something fun for you to think about. An annual survey conducted by NORC at the University of Chicago found that more dog owners are happier than cat owners. 36% of dog owners surveyed said that they are, quote, very happy, while only 18% of cat owners said they were very happy. Also, the survey found that dog owners are more likely to be married and more likely to own their own home than cat owners. And the survey found that both marriage and home ownership both contribute to life satisfaction. Mm. Peter, who do you kiss more, <laughs> me or our dogs? Mm. Define kiss. According to a survey conducted by Riley's Organics Dog Treat Company, over half of individuals, 52%, admitted to kissing their dog more than their partner. Okay, next question. Who do you prefer to sleep in bed with? Me, your wife, or your dogs? Okay, you not responding tells me the answer to that one. Same survey report that more than half of the individuals also said they prefer to sleep in bed with their dogs over their partner. Ready to honestly answer my next question on national radio? Go ahead. Who would you consider as your best friend? Mm. Our pit bull mix Cosmo or your wife? Oh, wow. Oh, equal. Equal. Two best friends. Should I be upset that you're answering this honestly or should I... <laughs> Do these pants make me look fat? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, not surprising. 94% of pet parents surveyed said they consider their dogs to be one of their best friends. If you had more pit bull in you, I think I would kiss you more fat. <laughs> okay. Okay. okay, we got to take a commercial break. Don't go away. You're listening to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about narwhals. These Arctic whales are recognized for their long, straight ivory tusks, which are often referred to as a unicorn horn. These iconic whales have intrigued explorers and scientists for hundreds of years. The narwhal's tusk, actually a tooth, has earned these medium-sized whales the moniker Unicorns of the Sea. They are around the same size as beluga whales, and they live in packs of 2 to 10. The total length of both male and female narwhals, excluding the tusk of the male, can range from 13 to 18 feet. Males weigh around 3,500 pounds and females weigh around 2,200 pounds. Narwhals favor cold temperatures and live in the Arctic waters of Canada, Russia, Norway, and Greenland, and they live for 30 to 40 years. The tusk may appear to emerge from the center of the narwhal's head, but it's actually an exaggerated front left tooth that protrudes from the upper lip. The tusk grows throughout the narwhal's life, and while it appears straight, a closer look shows that it has a spiral contour. Plus, the tusks lack hard enamel. The tusks are mainly a male feature, although approximately 15% of female narwhals have them. Recent drone videos revealed the tusk being used to stun fish, which are then eaten. 
Other probable functions include echolocation and in courtship. Their diet consists of shrimp, squid, and fish. They are the prey of orcas, sharks, polar bears, walruses, and of course, humans. It is legal for the northern Inuit population to hunt narwhals in Canada. A final point of interest is the narwhal's scientific name, Monodon monoceros, which is derived from the Greek, one tooth, one horn. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. You're listening to Animals Today Radio, your home for serious talk about animals. When I think about bald eagles, I always go back to the founding fathers and how the eagle became our national symbol. Do you ever wonder about that? And I remember this story about Ben Franklin, about him wanting the turkey to become part of the national seal or the national animal of the newly formed nation. And, you know, I wanted to find out if that was true or not. So I'll tell you what I learned in a moment. But, you know, after the Declaration of Independence was signed, the Continental Congress gave the job of designing an official seal. You need a seal, new country, to uh, Benjamin Franklin, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams. And they failed their initial attempts to create a seal. And finally, the task was given to a gentleman named Charles Thompson. He was the Secretary of Congress. And Thompson looked at some of the prior renderings and pulled some of the elements. And in particular, he got rid of a little white eagle that they had in one of the previous renderings and added the American bald eagle. And right away, this new drawing, and we'll post the neat drawing that he sketched, and you'll see the American bald eagle and its first inclusion on our national seal. And then the official seal was created from that, and you will recognize it today with the eagle with its outstretched wings, the shield on its chest. And you know, Lori, do you know what the eagle is grasping? In one talon, he's got the 13 arrows, right? And in the other, an olive branch. Even though we look at this symbol many times every day, would you have remembered exactly that little factoid? Anyway, here's the deal on Franklin. My research finds that Franklin made no vocal or written objection to the bald eagle becoming part of the national seal. But there's a letter he wrote to his daughter after the seal was adopted, and he writes, For my own part, I wish the bald eagle had not been chosen representative of our country. He is a bird of bad moral character. He does not get his living honestly. You may have seen him perched on some dead tree near the river where, too lazy to fish for himself, he watches the labor of the fishing hawk. And when that diligent bird has at length taken a fish and is bearing it to his nest for the support of his mate and his young ones, the bald eagle pursues him and takes it from him. And then he continues, the turkey is in comparison a much more respectable bird and withal a true original native of America. So that is from Ben Franklin himself in a letter to his daughter. And uh, he liked the turkey. Oh, and one more thing I wanted to add. Did you know there's a reverse of our official seal? And that is the drawing that has the unfinished pyramid and the zenith eye. There's a lot of speculation as to where this came from, but there is a reverse and you can see it on some of our currency. Anyway, I'll post all this so you can see these examples. There's a lot of interesting things uh, written about our great seal. Now back to the bald eagle. Uh, Bald eagle is one of two 
eagle species in North America, two main ones, the other being the golden eagle. The uh, bald eagle was very prevalent at the onset of the United States, but it was not really uh, thought of very highly. The uh, settlers uh, saw the bird as competing for natural resources, taking their fish, messing around with their livestock, and consequently they killed the eagles and they also killed them for sport. Native Americans trapped and killed the eagles and used the feathers for ceremonial purposes. It's thought that before European settlement, there were up to a half a million bald eagles across North America. And get this, as late as the mid-1800s, eagles in the winter were reportedly seen in Central Park in Manhattan. They had caught their fish in the nearby rivers and brought them to the park to munch on them. But the eagle populations continued dwindling and dwindling and... Ultimately, it was recognized that some legislation was needed, and in 1940, Congress passed the Bald Eagle Protection Act. This outlawed killing and disturbing of eagles, and you were not allowed to possess parts of eagles, including nests, eggs, and feathers. However, this uh, act was really not strictly enforced. The hunting, which included bounty hunting, was made worse by the introduction of the pesticide DDT, And there is some controversy exactly about how DDT worked to harm the eagle populations. But either way, the populations really, really shrunk. And of course, Rachel Carson's famous book, Silent Spring, that was published in 1962. And ultimately, the pesticide was banned in the U.S. in 1972. A survey in 1963 found only 417 nesting pairs of bald eagles in the entire lower 48 states. Fortunately, the comeback of the bald eagle is one of the great conservation stories in history. Due to uh, enforcement of the Endangered Species Act, captive breeding, and a recognition that we really need to support the species, they have uh, come back and now can be found widely, as well as in Mexico, Canada, and Alaska. In fact, they are no longer considered endangered. Laura, you remember when we saw those eagles when we were in Alaska a few years ago? I sure do. I fortunately had my new telephoto lens and took some great pictures. It helps to be able to enlarge them when you're not really a professional photographer. And I will post them also on on the website. I wanted to add, there are still some threats to uh, bald eagles. Uh, They include illegal shooting. Who would do that is considered the biggest threat to their safety. Also, another threat includes lead poisoning from lead shot, which is used to shoot ducks, which the eagles then uh, eat, power lines, habitat loss, and of course, those wind farms. Peter, that's so informative. Thank you. Yeah, who doesn't love the bald eagle? That's right. Lori, recently in the news, there have been a number of really sad stories about the effects of xylitol, particularly when dogs are eating xylitol. They get very sick and sometimes die. The FDA has just released a consumer health information bulletin talking about xylitol and dogs. And you can review this at fda.gov consumer but it's a pretty comprehensive uh, warning about all the foods that contain xylitol, including chewing gum. And I'm going to talk about the specific brands of gum in just a minute, so you can be aware of that. But the xylitol is really dangerous to dogs. You know why? Because it causes a strong release of insulin from the pancreas in dogs, but not in people. And this causes profound decrease in blood sugar, and that can come on in just a few minutes and can be life-threatening. 
Symptoms of xylitol poisoning in dogs includes vomiting and then decreased activity, weakness, staggering, incoordination, collapse, and seizures, and death. So if you even think your dog has eaten xylitol, you want to bring him or her to the vet or animal hospital immediately. Even before showing these symptoms. Even before. And they may want to keep your dog there for 12 to 24 hours to monitor to make sure this uh, doesn't occur. And, you know, interestingly, cats really don't care to eat xylitol. So it's not really a problem with, with them. So what are some of the foods containing xylitol? Well, the items, I'll say, are some sugar-free candies, uh, toothpaste. Some human toothpaste contains xylitol, so you don't want to let your dog near that. And that's the other reason why you don't want to brush your dog's teeth with human toothpaste, by the way. Mouthwash, some nut butters. That's a new thing. Some of these nut butters have added xylitol for sweetness. But the biggest offender appears to be chewing gum. So don't let your dog near chewing gum. And mints too, right, Peter? Yeah, you bet. Some sugar-free mints are sweetened with xylitol. For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to advancing the rights of animals through a variety of law-based programs, including legislation, litigation, and public education, including model laws. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. Welcome back. We are very pleased to welcome Vicki Benjamin. She is president of Carner Blue Capital. Yes, an investment firm or an investment company. And we're going to learn about what they are doing there related to animal welfare around the world. Vicki, welcome. Oh, well, thank you, Peter. I'm so happy to be here and excited to be able to give the opportunity to spread the mission about merging the worlds of investment management with animal welfare. As Peter said, my name is Vicki Benjamin. I'm president and co-founder of Carnablue Capital, a firm uh, that is centered around using the capital markets to further the lives of animals. Back in 2017, early 17, I was at a crossroads in my life and having spent my career in investment management and accounting, decided most lately at a very large socially responsible investment firm, Calvert Investments, which I was helping to liquidate after the sale of its assets in Vance, I decided to do something a little different. And at the tail end of my career, wanted to merge my lifelong love of animals with my passion for investing and responsible investing with my talents for accounting and investment management. And with my general counsel from Calvert, decided to start the firm Carner Blue Capital. Carner Blue Capital, was found, the concept was founded early in 2017 and became a registered investment advisor in the middle of 2017. And at the beginning of 2017, we hired analysts to start doing benchmarking and researching companies involved in animal impact industries, of 14 of which we've identified, benchmarking them against each other and selecting those that have the best animal welfare policies for investment. We did that. Um, We constituted the first portfolio. It took 18 months of research 
12 people looking at 14 different industries. And those industries are all of your usual players, agriculture, pharma, chemicals, household and personal products. Those are those represent the animals in captivity that most of us think about when we think about animals affected by corporate behavior. But we also captured something else, something that had been missed for a long time, and that was the impacts of corporations on animals. A lot of folks, especially in the investment management world, even the ESG world, have not thought about the intersection of corporate activities and the impacts on biodiversity and animals and how to capture that intersection, evaluate it, and incorporate it in stock price valuations for investment management product packaging. And that's what we did. So we looked at all the extractive industries, metals and mining, uh, oil and gas. We looked at textiles and apparel. We looked at wood and paper. We looked at renewables. We looked at all of those industries that impact the animals that are in the wild, and we benchmarked them. This exercise was exhaustive. We reviewed 7,000 companies and selected 101 that we felt were suitable for investment. And I often like to say, because many of these companies are not friends of ours or somebody that we would outside of renewables, everyone loves a renewable, are not companies that we would say, wow, I really like them. But given the backdrop of the fact that we are going to be using animals, animal products, that we are going to be encroaching on nature, we need to be responsible about that. And we have to understand the fact that we are going to be using metals and mining. So we should be supporting those companies that are the best in those areas, the nicest house in a bad neighborhood, and engaging with those that aren't as good and those that need improvement. So Corner Blue was founded on selecting for investment for our investors to provide market returns in those companies that impact animals and behave the best and to engage with proactively with those that lag behind. Very good. So in September of 2019, we launched the retail product, the Carner Blue Animal Impact Mutual Fund. Very good. Okay, so I am interested in uh, directing my investments as wisely as I can. I love animals. I love the environment. When I visit, say, the website, what will I see there? And as a small-time individual investor, there are products that I can uh, that are accessible to me. So, Peter, the the love of animals crosses all boundaries: women, men, children, um, Republicans. Democrats, old and young. I wanted to make sure I had a product for the masses. The Animal Impact Mutual Fund has uh, its own website, animalimpactfund.com. Carner Blue Capital has its own website. To learn about our approach, you would go to carnerbluecapital.com. To see the mutual fund and invest directly, you would go to animalimpactfund.com. We have an investor class that, because for friends of yours, they, can, they just need to say your name. 
they can invest for as little as $500 into the investor class. Hmm. Of course, we have foundations that are in the trademarked butterfly class. But for retail investors, and I, I truly mean this, I, I wanted a product that people felt good about. They can go in for as little as 500 It says 2000 on the website. But I really think this product's for everybody. And as you probably know, everyone knows, like, one out of three people loves animals and commits times or dollars to improving their well-being. Are investors giving anything up to get involved in a product like this? Uh, there's always this concern that, you know, you're sort of giving away opportunities when you uh, exclude companies. A lot of times people think of socially responsible or doing well by doing good investing, but you give up returns. We are uh, my first responsibility is to my investors. My second responsibility is to the animals. I am investing in good companies and I'm putting together strategies that are providing investment returns. And on the website, if you go to the fact sheet for the Animal Impact Fund, you will see the returns and they are definitely market and competitive. So while we're seeking to help the animals, we are just as much seeking to provide very good financial performance for our investors. Most socially responsible investors are looking to do well and to seek financial returns. And that's what we're doing because while we're also evaluating companies on their financial viability and investability, we're looking for quality companies that'll provide market returns. We're also engaging with companies and influencing them to change their behaviors. It's a double bottom line. Vicki, Wayne Paselli, formerly of the Humane Society, he is the executive vice president. What does he bring to a company like yours? Wayne is a good friend. Wayne came on back in 2018 as an animal welfare advisor. He helps provide strategy, and he runs our nonprofit Carner Blue Center for Humane Economy Foundation, as well as we, we are an impact platform we have four organizations. He also runs our PAC, our Political Action Committee, Animal Wellness Action, and they are actively engaged in moving forward the lives of animals through legislature. Yeah. Wayne is active on an, uh, a campaign right now, which I can send you information on, regarding kangaroos and the use of kangaroos for leather and for meat. Wayne is singularly a luminary in animal welfare and was additive in our animal welfare, knowledge, and influence. Yeah. We are speaking with Vicki Benjamin, president of Carner Blue Capital. We'll continue right after this break. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner from Animals Today Radio Show, and here's an idea for you and your family if you're thinking about adopting one or more dogs. Adopt with a big picture in mind. What I mean by that is to consider adopting dogs that are less popular and therefore harder to place and more likely to get euthanized due to shelter overcrowding. Many shelters are swamped with pit bulls and pit mixes and chihuahuas and chihuahua mixes, so why not adopt one or more of these breeds and really save a life? You can also adopt senior dogs, black dogs who are unfairly stigmatized by some people, and disabled dogs. My friend adopted a three-legged dog who is as happy as can be. 
When you adopt one or more of these special dogs or cats, you really are doing something about the euthanasia rate. So think about if one of these wonderful creatures can find a place in your heart and home. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Do you know what declawing is? People often mistakenly believe that declawing is a simple procedure that removes a cat's nails. Sadly, this is far from the truth because declawing is actually a painful surgery in which the last bone of each toe is amputated, including skin, tendons, and nerves. If performed on a person, it would be like amputating each finger at the last joint. Besides the immediate risk of surgery, like infection and bleeding, the pain cat's experience continues long after the surgery, preventing them from walking normally and leading to arthritis. Often, after declawing, cats will stop using their litter boxes, choosing carpet, beds, or piles of clothing instead. And without their claws, their first line of defense, many declawed cats will feel stressed and begin biting. Plus, if your cat happens to get outside, she'll need her claws to defend herself from other animals. Most people get their cats declawed to try to prevent unwanted scratching and damage to furniture. But scratching is a natural behavior that is important for cats. Declawed cats cannot stretch or knead normally. Why would anyone want to take that away from a cat? The bottom line is declawed cats can suffer lifelong discomfort and disability. It's not difficult to modify the scratching behaviors of a cat, such as having a few sturdy scratching posts around the house and using toys and catnip to encourage their use. Did you know that many countries have banned declawing? And many veterinarians in the U.S. refuse to perform the procedure because it is unnecessary and cruel. So those are the facts about declawing. There's just no reason to do this to your cats. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. The major supporter of Animals Today Radio from the first days of our broadcasting over a decade ago has been International Society for Animal Rights. For decades, ISAR has been a world leader in the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and its moral, social, and economic costs. Please visit their website at isaronline.com. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today. Do you ever wonder what you can do to be nicer to animals and to help them? Here are a few things you can do to show your appreciation to our furry friends. You can donate to or volunteer at your local animal shelter. Walking the dogs and playing with the cats is a meaningful way to make a difference in the lives of homeless animals in our shelters. You can be a foster parent if you have the extra time and space. Becoming a foster parent is a wonderful way to take some of the burden off our overcrowded shelters by giving an animal a loving place to live until a forever home is found. Increase your appreciation for wildlife by providing a welcoming space around your home for butterflies, hummingbirds, and other creatures. Also, by simply driving cautiously through areas populated by wildlife such as deer, you're acting with compassion. 
These are only a few ideas to encourage you to continue thinking about acting kindly towards animals. This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit us at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And here are a few more ways to be kind to animals, beginning with this. Report suspected animal abuse or neglect. If you see an underfed dog or an animal left in a car on a hot day, report it right away. You can be saving a life. Try a vegetarian or even better, a vegan diet, even just beginning with one day a week. Decreasing and then eliminating your consumption of animals is probably the best way to show your appreciation for them and for the environment, too. Don't buy cosmetics or household products that have been tested on animals. That's easy these days, and there are apps to guide your purchases. And finally, don't wear clothing made from animals. Say no to fur and leather, and then you can give up wool and silk as well. It's easier than you might imagine. This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit us at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Okay, so we are speaking at the end of March 2020, and we're going to conclude with uh, this question. Let's talk about the coronavirus and the pandemic we are all enduring. It's a very scary time. You recently published a release addressing this. How does your company look at this pandemic? What are you trying to get across in your release? Well, as you know, Peter, how you treat animals affects very many facets of your life. And this pandemic, um, unfortunately, is, is a result of the interaction between humans and animals. So pandemics can arise, uh, 60% of them are zoonotic. Zoonotic is those that arise from animals transmission, transmitting to human beings. So out of that, 80% of that 60% comes from wildlife contact. So putting aside, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna focus in on the wildlife piece, but I do wanna say that the remaining of that is, com- is possibly coming out of, can come out of concentrated farming organizations, industrialized farming, which we've all heard of. And so if you look at that, as far as our Carter Blues engagement with companies, we don't believe it. We think industrialized farming is horrible. And some of our indicators when we evaluate companies is how, of course, how they treat those animals. So when you look at that percentage of, pan- of the possibility of pandemics coming out of industrialized farming, we are looking at companies that allow space between animals, aren't using antibiotics, because you only use antibiotics when there is not enough room for the animals to move around and diseases are freely transmitted. So poor behavior with animals in in industrialized agriculture can result in pandemics. Let me focus now back to to the conversation at hand, which is wild animals. When humans disrupt wild animal environments, it's much like shaking a tree. You release pathogens. And these pathogens can come in the form of bacteria or viruses. What we do know is that when animals are put in stressful situations, so that they are, tr- they are hunted, they are trapped, they are caged, they are put into a marketplace with other animals that may be predators to them, they are stressed, they are carrying zoonotic viruses, viruses that human beings know nothing about, and most of them we don't know. Only 1% of viruses are known. These viruses shake off them. They come out generally, in, in this case, 
they could be airborne. They come from blood. They come from urine. They are directly transmitted to human beings in these marketplaces while these animals are killed and slaughtered in these cruel and inhumane conditions. So the wet markets directly transmit these viruses to human beings through direct contact. And now we're hearing that they're actually even airborne, the most dangerous kind possible. This also, this is one way that you can get these viruses, but there's also trophy hunting. Um, One only has to think about Ebola and that chimpanzee that died. He was not trophy hunted, but he was already dead in the wilderness when he was he was when he was taken by villagers and butchered and eaten in the wild and the Ebola virus carried on through the contaminated meat and that that is called a vehicle but when metal and mining companies build roads infrastructures into what is tropical forests where these zoonotic viruses are most likely to live in these animals they disrupt the environment they so so-called shake the tree and the viruses rain down, mm-hmm. and every conflict, and the reason we're seeing more and more instances of this is because climate change is changing migratory patterns of animals. Climate change is moving animals out of different places. People are 7.2 billion people are moving into animal areas and increasing the wildlife, animal, human conflict and contact. And so we need to be responsible of our interactions, companies and individuals with wildlife and respectful of their place of residence. And at Corner Blue, we evaluate, much as I said at the very beginning, the habitats of the animals and those companies, especially the extractive companies, metals and mining, fossil fuels, even utilities that go through barren country, new country, and invade the country and open it up to interactions with wild animals that have have not had contact previously. That is the reason we thought that we need to be conversant, aware, and respectful of nature. And, and one of the reasons I did the, this, started this firm with, with, with Andrew Niebler, and the reason that we continue to, to fight this battle is we need to be respectful of the interconnectivity between human beings, animals, on the planet. Vicki Benjamin, I have a feeling listeners are going to want to learn more. Remind us of the websites uh, in case people want to consider investing. We have the com website that explains our approach walks through all of our industries. We do have a proprietary document called the Animal Welfare Principles that frame our research. Uh, We also have the AnimalImpactFund.com has its own website, and it gives very easy instructions on how to invest and also parameters about the number of securities in the fund and the, the most current performance. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today. Thank you, Peter, and have a, have a great day. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. 